Grace, Father, it is a great blessing to be with your people today. Thank you for calling us together. Thank you for giving us promises to be with us, to be near us, to instruct us. I pray that we would cling to that in hope, knowing that we are not left to figure out how to uh, navigate in this world to our, by ourselves, but you are near us, you're with us, you guide us, you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit, you have called us into your church. May we as your church be strengthened and edified today as we gather to hear your word preached and to uh, be instructed as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So one of the indicators that uh, some people still view me as being youngish is that I um, am occasionally asked, what does it mean to be woke? Um, and this is a question that I'm a little bit apprehensive to answer just because it's uh, one of those terms that uh, so easily is uh, used in many slippery ways. And so if you're curious right now what it does mean to be woke, I'm not going to give you an answer. <laughs> but there is a big conversation happening in our country right now. Has been for the past couple of years, a uh, conversation around the topic of justice. Now topic, uh, the conversation about justice is really one that goes back as long as we have written record of people discussing things, discussing ideas. The ancient philosophers uh, discussed justice, and there is a whole uh, big conversation in the great books of history in which justice is a recurring theme. But in our time now, it seems like uh, the last couple of years, there's been a, a lot of especially heated conversation around it because there are strong and differing views about what justice even is. Uh, this has partially been spurred on by some uh, events, uh, the police encountering uh, different people. Maybe some of these names are familiar. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Ahmaud Arbery. These are names that come up in the media and in the news and uh, because of their encounters with the police. Uh, there is also an increasing presence of uh, radical leftist ideology, uh, some uh, being directly propagated by uh, certain politicians. Other people are complaining about its uh, penetration into our schools and into our government agencies and really throughout all of society. So there's this big conversation about justice. And the question is, what is our role as the church in this conversation? Are we supposed to be just checked out and think, you know, that, that the, let the world have their conversation and we will just uh, continue on ours? Or should, is this something that we should be aware of and engage in? Well, I do think that as uh, the Church of God, as uh, salt and light in this world, we do need to be a people who are informed on these issues and taking uh, part in these conversations. But not just taking part in the conversation, uh, repeating whatever lines we hear from our favorite media outlet, whether it be Fox News or the Daily Wire, but making sure that we are a people who are taking our cues from Scripture first and foremost. Now, this isn't to say we can't rely on secular sources. I've found certain things on places like Daily Wire helpful. I will even later recommend a, a book on the topic, which is not necessarily by a believer, but our duty as a church is first and foremost to be grounded in what the scripture says. But in addition to just our general calling as the church 
to be informed on these topics, to be engaging in this conversation. We also have to be aware of the youth of the church. And I say this because as I, as I think about the adults in our church, I'm not sure that many of you are very drawn to or enticed by leftist ideologies. I think as a church, it's fair to say we are a pretty conservative bunch in here. And yet we can't forget that the young people among us are still formulating their understanding and they're thinking about the world around us. And it is crucial that we are showing them from Scripture and being clear about what we believe about these issues. And that, that we as Christians do have a position on topics such as justice. And that we can think clearly about these issues. But not just think clearly, but be compelling in the way that we engage these topics as well. I've heard too many stories recently of kids who were raised in good strong, Bible-based churches, but then being swept up in these uh, really bad ideas, to just put it directly. So we need to be a church who engages in the idea, but make sure that we are engaging first and foremost from Scripture. And that's part of what this whole book study that we've been doing this year has been about. And some may have felt like it was a little bit indirect because it was a book about the mission of the church. We didn't read a book this year uh, that was solely focused on justice or social justice. We didn't read a book this year about critical race theory or intersectionality or confronting these ideas directly on. But what we've done is we've studied the mission of the church, seeing that when we focus on what the church is called to, what the church is supposed to be doing, how the church is supposed to think about the problems of the world and our place within it, That is the groundwork for then us being able to engage and think about issues of justice and some of the things that are being said about social justice in our time. So with all that said, I have really two main goals for this morning. And that is first, I would like to take just a little bit of time to think about justice and the phrase social justice to think, see, hear a little bit about what the world is saying about it and to look then what Scripture says about justice. And then for the remainder of our time, I would like us to reflect on our calling and duties as a church regarding justice and good works uh, with five exhortations towards justice and good work. So the first part, justice and social justice. Um, out of curiosity, is there anybody who was reading the book, or even maybe last uh, month when T2 was talking, uh, doing a Sunday school lesson, and just the phrase social justice makes you a little bit uncomfortable? Okay. Fewer hands than I expected. Um, I know for me, when I hear someone say social justice, it shoots up a red flag. Because in our time, that word, that phrase has a lot of baggage tied to it. But is the phrase in and of itself a bad one? Well, here's what DeYoung and Gilbert had to say. We've offered no definition of the phrase. That's because there really isn't one. We use the term as it is commonly conceived, that is something ambiguously connected with poverty and oppression. But we'd rather not use the term at all. So they even have some hesitancy about the phrase social justice, though they opted to continue to use it. 
And I think part of the issue is separating the denotation, that is the literal meaning of the words, from the connotations that the word has. That is the extra baggage, the extra associations with it. Because if we look at the denotation, what, what are we talking about? Social justice. Okay, we're talking about a, the, the systemic or social aspects of injustice. So if, if we think of uh, justice, or uh, it's actually a little bit easier to think about it in its negative terms. Think about acts of individual injustice. A corrupt judge, maybe. Ruling impartiality of one party over another. Or a corrupt employer not paying his employees his due or following through on a contract. We could call that an injustice. And, the, and it needs to be corrected with true justice. But we could think about social justice, or social injustice is those, is those injustices which are systemically ingrained in society. And I realize even using the word systemic and injustice together probably triggers some red flags for some of you because of just the baggage associated with systemic injustice and the way ideas tied to it. But can we deny deny that sin impacts social institutions? Is it not fair to call this system of US chattel slavery that existed in our country for so long a social injustice? Maybe you would say yes, but I prefer not using that language. And that's OK. But my point is just this. If we're only looking at the words social injustice together, I don't think there's a problem with that. At the same time, though, we can't be so naive to think that there aren't connotations with it. So about a year ago, I knew some people who were looking to leave their church because they thought the church was going woke. So in coming alongside these people that I knew, I chose to listen to the sermon series that their pastor had preached, which gave them that impression. And he was using the language of social justice. And then he went on to give an explanation, saying, well, what's wrong with social justice? And he gave some sort of explanation similar to what I said. But then he stopped there. And he failed to acknowledge that there is a huge amount of freight and baggage in the connotations and the associations with the phrase social justice. Because it is a phrase that's primarily associated with the left and extremist leftist ideology and even Marxism. And so I do think we have to be careful about that. And I don't think it's necessarily a wrong instinct to hear the phrase and to have a little part of you kind of peek up like, oh, not sure if I'm comfortable with where this is going. But one thing I would challenge you all to do is if you hear someone use the phrase, don't dismiss them right away. Listen to what they have to say. I will say that there, I have come across some people using it in a way that's not loaded with leftist ideology. There's a few online blogs uh, that engage in cultural and um, political issues. Thinking of websites like First Things and the Acton Institute, they're generally right-leaning groups. One of them is a, an explicitly Catholic group. But they, use the, they frequently use this phrase social justice. But as you read on, you see that it's not the leftist kind of it. So what do we do then? Okay. Well, I'd encourage us to be listeners. When we hear a phrase like that, uh, listen to what people are saying as we begin to engage them with their ideas. And specifically, listen for 
potentially destructive ideas that are embedded within their, uh, what they are saying. Because there are three what I'm calling red flags of social justice ideology, and by that what I mean is the, 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 the leftist form of the social justice ideology that we need to be aware of, that we need to look for, and I think are incredibly unscriptural. And now I'm, I'm walking into dangerous territory because I'm trying to touch on some very complex ideas. Each one of them could, could merit an entire Sunday school lesson or even maybe even an entire series. And I'm just trying to give you a snapshot of these dangerous ideas, these red flags. So as you listen, know that my point is merely to just kind of put these ideas on your radar. And if you want more about them, you're going to have to go elsewhere. But I will give you some recommended resources if you're curious at the end. So again, I'm just kind of putting these ideas on your radar. So as you listen, as you hear, instead of just being triggered by the phrase social justice, you can listen for some of the destructive ideas that are commonly tied to it. And the first one that I find the most prevalent and the most often and the most easily slipped in is the exchange of equality of outcomes instead of equality of opportunity. How many of you have heard some uh, form of conversation around equality of outcomes versus equality of opportunity? And are familiar. This is good. That is highly encouraging to know that people are aware of this because it's the kind of thing that for many people it just slides under the radar because that word equality, the way that the word equality is used in drastically different ways. So in short, the exchange of equality of outcomes for the equality of opportunities say that, says that it is not just enough for something to be fair to all people, to, be, to have the blindfolds on. So to have a system of courts and justice in which all people are, are judged equally regardless of their race, regardless of their creed, regardless of their gender. It is not enough to have employers that provide an, an equal opportunity for an employment, regardless of your race, your creed, or your gender. They, the, those who want to insist on the equality of outcomes say that if, if, if the way things finally shake out in the end isn't evenly distributed among the different groups, then there must be an underlying injustice. So, for example, if, we, if there is a study which demonstrates that women receive lower wages than men, it means that there must be an injustice there. Or if there is a study which reveals that there are unequal incrimination rates uh, among pe people of different races, then there must be an underlying injustice. And even uh, at my school, at the end of the school year, we were, we were, our assistant principal brought out two pie charts. And one was the uh, breakdown of our school by race and ethnicity. And then the other pie chart was the disciplinary rates for those groups uh, according to their race and, and ethnicity. And the underlying assumption was if, they, if, they, if those two charts didn't really line up, if we weren't disciplining this racial group at a similar rate as this other racial group, there must be an underlying injustice. Well, this is not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us 
that there will be differences. Scripture gives us both demonstrations of wealthy, godly people. Think of Abraham. He was a wealthy man. Think of King David. He was a wealthy man. And yet, think of all the righteous poor that Jesus encountered throughout his ministry as well. Now, that is just on the economic level, but the Bible does not promise us that there will be an equal outcome. It doesn't even necessarily lift that up as the ideal. Now, as a small caveat on this, I'm not saying it's wrong to look at these soci sociological studies, see an inequality, and think to ourselves, maybe there's an injustice. Maybe there is a, this is an indicator of an injustice, but to insist that the unequal outcomes necessarily means that there is an injustice at place is wrong. So that's the first uh, tenet of uh, the social justice ideology that we need to be aware of, that it should be on our radar, that we should be listening to. The second one is identity politics. According to identity politics, everything, everyone, is seen and analyzed in terms of their race or the social group from which they belong to. A couple phrases you may have heard in this would be things like white privilege or intersectionality. And these are not abstract ideologies that are being uh, merely discussed in ivory towers. These are ideas that are, are, are touching point in our lives and in our work lives. I had to sit through four or six hours of training on intersectionality this year. Uh, but it's not just public sphere employees. I've talked to people who even work in the private sphere whose employees are making them sit through these uh, trainings, which want to analyze everything in terms of race and social groups. One of the more uh, popular ideas kind of under this broad banner is critical race theory. I hesitated on even bringing this word up just because I know it's a phrase that there's a lot of debate about what does it even mean. Liberals oftentimes have looked at conservatives in this conversation and said, you're not getting it. You're, you're not quite representing us right. It also seems like a lot of conservatives like to use it as a label to slap on things they don't like. Oh, that's all CRT, slap, just dismiss it outright. But as much as there is a murky discussion around this idea going on in our time, I don't think we can escape it. I don't think we can ignore it. And uh, one guy, James Lindsay, he's an atheist. And he's actually gotten quite, he, he had done some interviews in, with Christian guys, like he was on Albert Moeller's show. And he um, had had some helpful conversations with Christians. Recently, he's actually become more hostile towards Christians as well. But he, he, what he, where he's helpful is he provides a pretty succinct definition of what critical race theory is. He says, critical race theory holds that the most important thing about you is your race, the color of your skin. That's who you are. Not your behavior, not your values, not your environment, your race. In critical race theory, if you are a member of a minoritized racial group, their terms, not mine, you are a victim of a system that is rigged against you, a system that doesn't want you to succeed. On the other hand, if your race is privileged, you're an exploiter, whether you intend to be or not. 
So again, not giving a full treatment of each of these issues, just trying to put them on your radar as far as uh, identifying the more destructive aspects of social justice ideology. And the last uh, red flag to be aware of is analyzing everything in terms of oppress and oppressors, or an oppress versus oppressor paradigm. That is, all our social ills can be analyzed in terms of the oppressed and oppressors. And, and the ultimate goal is this, this sort of utopian cosmic justice in which there is this kind of perfect equality of outcomes among all people. And if some of this sounds familiar, it is essentially the Marxist paradigm of economics applied to social situations, which is why some, though controversially, call it cultural Marxism. So now that I've opened a massive can of worms and just thrown a bunch of big words and big ideas, all very controversial, all with, if you Google any of them, you'll find billions of pages online. Any questions with the caveat that I cannot answer them all? <laughs> or comments? Yeah, Carol. How does it not make race out of all of us? It does. Yeah. Keith, who said it does? Let's go well, with that. Well, the tenet of it is saying that every white person is a racist, yeah. period, whether they acknowledge it or not. Yep. So it does. It's ultimately more divisive. And, and I think that's showing itself. I think it's crea created more division in our country. Where it, I mean, so one nice thing about ideas is you give them enough time they demonstrate their fruit. And I think the fruit of a lot of these destructive ideas is demonstrating itself. And people are, at least some people, obviously a lot of people aren't, but some people are kind of waking up to that. And it's driving, the nice thing is it's driving some people to look for other answers, and it's driving them to the church, to the gospel. Because when they see how fruitless, how devoid of help and answers the, the world ideas is, they go looking elsewhere. And they see that there is true hope. There is um, truth to be found in scripture. Any other comments, questions? Yeah, Nick. So here you say that equality of outcome is not a realistic or even biblical ideal. So what about equality of opportunity? Equality of opportunity, yes. And so that's where, that's the slippery slope of, of verbiage. I mean, I think... A lot of times people just say equality. People on the left will say it and mean equality of outcomes. But I think those with more traditional mindset thinking of justice have in mind equality of opportunity. And I, I would say that that is the scriptural idea of justice. And that's where we're going to be turning next. Is that, that where you're going just looking for an affirmation that equality of opportunity is the scriptural idea? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it is the scriptural idea of justice and equality. Mike? Well, I, think the, I think the equality of outcome is equity. I think that is the word. I agree. That's like the common part. That's the parlance right now. Equality and equity. Though you, again, I, I caution people to just pause. And if they hear someone say equity, not immediately pounce on them. Listen to what they're saying. But you are right in our time. In a lot of contexts, you can probably assume that that's where someone's going if they say equity instead of equality. 
Yeah, Tim. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the sense that uh, you being a, a wealthy person, for example, mm-hmm. have access to attorneys who can uh, flood uh, the prosecutors with all sorts of paperwork and things to fill out. And prosecutors uh, advance in their systems and in their jobs through winning cases. So if Yeah. Um, and it's unfair. Um, but anyway, I just thought I would throw that out. No, the, and there's issues that need to be dealt with, but I don't think that what these people, that these woke people are talking about, really, they're not really talking about that. I really actually appreciate that example a lot. And that's, that's the intersection point where I think we as Christians need to be very sharp on this issue, is acknowledging just because there are a lot of people out there pushing destructive ideas around justice and injustice and wrong diagnoses or wrong prognoses, it doesn't mean that that we have a perfect system. It doesn't mean that there aren't injustices. And I'm not an expert on that topic you just brought up, so I can't comment on the particulars of that. But those are the kinds of things that I think we as Christians need to be aware of, looking into, and those of us who have callings in the legal field, who have callings in the world of politics, need to be aware of real injustices and be ready to act on them as well, which is part where I was wanting to wrap this thing up, which is an exhortation to be involved, to be engaged in it. So a couple uh, quick recommendations. Books. I'm just going to limit it to two Though I was tempted to give you two dozen. (laughs) As far as the issue of of justice and injustice, out of the books that I've read by Christians in the recent past, I found Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus J. Williams to be of the more helpful and accessible. Okay? Um, And if you didn't get that written down, I can get it to you later. If you're interested, I've lent my copy to a friend. but it's confronting injustice without compromising truth. The nice thing is he engages the ideas, but then ends each chapter with a story from a real life person who has in some way been um, impacted by the idea discussed in that chapter. Another more heady book is The Quest for Cosmic Justice by Thomas Sowell. He's not a Christian, but he provides a very helpful uh, analysis of the idea of cosmic justice or um, the the whole topic of unequal outcomes. If you're not quite ready to dive into a book, if you're looking for maybe a blog, but that's more substantial, uh, Neil Shenvey at shenveyapologetics.com has a lot of really helpful resources. And it's not really your traditional blog with these kind of uh, quips, but he has like very substantial essays that he's posted there engaging with a host of these topics. And if you're not feeling like reading anything and you just want to listen instead, I got two podcasts for you. One is Defending Confirmed. I have to give credit to Jonas for that one, for tipping me off and making me aware of them. They have some very helpful series on on these topics. 
And then also the Just Thinking podcast. These guys offer some uh, very helpful insight. Now, as a caveat, uh, the blogger and both those um, podcasts are Baptists, but they're, uh, they're pretty good for the Baptists. Okay. No, very helpful, and I love my Baptist brothers and sisters. So, with ten mi nine minutes left, five exhortations toward justice in good works. So first one, don't overcorrect and react. Much of the book that we read this year has been addressing those who get the mission of the church wrong, those who define it too broadly or overstate the role of the church in the world of building the kingdom or doing justice, uh, doing social justice. And much of the teaching we've got around the book and in reading the book has been a corrective of wrong ideas. And there is a temptation in doing this to focus so much what we're not supposed to believe that we kind of miss the thrust of what we are supposed to be doing. Now, we've been very clear about what, what, what is the mission of the church to make... Oh, come on, people. What is the mission of the church? Make disciples. Make okay, so I hope that has been clear. But we, we spent a lot of time saying what it's not and confronting these, like, the twisting of Scripture. And... I fear that sometimes there's an impression that I think we know is wrong, but an impression that um, we're arguing against good works or against doing good in the world. So let's, I, let me say it again. We are not. And DeYoung and Gilbert were very aware of this tension in writing the book because if we can go all the way back to their first chapter, this is something that they said. One challenge of this book, probably the biggest, is that we may be seen as two guys only paying lip service to good deeds. While we hope this book gives Christians better handle on disputed texts, which it absolutely did, one of my favorite things about the book, and a better categories for thinking of their service in the world, we would be disappointed to discover a year from now that our work did anything to discourage radical love and generosity for hurting people. So they're aware that of this uh, temptation that they spend so much time addressing wrong interpretations of scripture that we miss the thrust of what we are to be doing. They also said, we want to say again, we strongly support churches undertaking mercy ministries in their communities. Both of our churches have programs and support missionaries that aim to meet physical needs while also hoping to share the gospel whenever possible. Though we do not believe that the mission of the church is to build the kingdom or to partner with God in remaking the world, this does not mean we are against cultural engagement. And so I hope that at this point in time that it is established that the that the church's mission is to make disciples and that we can ground ourselves in that and not react against these other ideas into some sort of passivity, but double down in this task of being and making disciples. And so exhortation number two is that as disciples, we are called to obey Jesus in everything that he commanded. Christian Maslach, last month, he's an elder out, out at our, the church in Cincinnati, was here, and when teach, was teaching, he asked this question. If the mission of the church is to make disciples, and disciples are to obey Christ in all that they do, won't this have an impact on the work that Christians are doing out in the world? Absolutely. As we seek to follow Jesus, that will absolutely impact the way that we interact in the world and act in the world and are his presence in the world. And it will change the world. 
Maybe not always in the way that the social justice advocates think or have in mind, but we absolutely will change the world. How can a changed heart and a changed life and someone who is seeking to follow Jesus in everything they do not have an impact on the world around them? We are salt and light in this broken world. Remember that Jesus said, you are salt and light. We are commanded to love our neighbors. We are called ambassadors of Christ. So as we seek to obey Jesus in all the world, we will have an impact. Young and Gilbert give us five reasons for, uh, to do, pursue good works. Because of time, I can't go into detail, but let me at least list them for you. Their exposition and explanation of these in the book is very good. So if you want more on these, go there. We do good works to obey God, whom we love. We do good works because we love our neighbors. We do good works to show the world God's character and God's work. We do good works because they are the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. And we do good works to win a hearing for the gospel. Exhortation number three. Consider our critics. Another way to think about uh, this whole topic is to consider what our critics have to say. I think a lot of the people who are writing, who we are finding ourselves in, in ideological opposition to, have looked at the church and seen her to be less than faithful. Seen churches filled with Christians who are more concerned with their next vacation than their suffering neighbors who see Christians who are more concerned with getting a bigger and better home than, their, than those who are homeless around them. In short, they look at the church and they see materialists who are more concerned with our stuff than we are concerned about people. Now, I'm not saying they're always right. I think there's a lot of ideological stuff to wade through. I think they maybe just don't understand the in, in, in importance and the value of being just a productive citizen whose life might not look super glamorous. But I do think even our critics, even who we have so much to disagree with, we have to ask ourselves, is there some validity in their critique? Are they on to something? Are we being faithful? Are we repentant of our materialism? Do we care for people? And I think just asking ourselves that question, being willing to receive some critique, even if there are pieces of it which we think are completely invalid, we need to be able to ask ourselves. We also need to realize that, yes, some of it is legitimately invalid. And part of that is because as disciples of Jesus, we're trying to be faithful to Jesus saying not to parade our good works before others. That we aren't supposed to make a big deal about our good works. Um, how many Christians are doing great things that nobody knows about? You walk into the church and you think, oh, all these people, they're just a bunch of middle-class white folks who only care about getting their next raise at work. When they make these judgments, do they really know what these people are doing with their time during the week? 
And so I'm just saying that there are, that yes, there, there are two parts of that. They, they could be wrong, they could be right, but are we willing to pause and ask ourselves if there is anything in their critique that they're getting correct? Exhortation number four is to encourage Christians in the work that they are doing. So just like I mentioned, there are a lot of Christians out there doing great work that they aren't necessarily parading that many people wouldn't know about. So let's just think about a few different spheres of society. Politics and law. How many of you know a Christian who is faithfully or striving to faithfully serve in the realm of politics and law? Pray for them. Encourage them. Ask them if there are ways that you can come alongside them in their work, like the issue that Tim brought up. Or an issue of true injustice. We need Christians engaging in the public sphere, in the political sphere, in the, in the sphere of law, confronting true injustices. There's lots of claims about false forms of injustice, but it doesn't mean that injustice doesn't still exist. We do not live in utopia. We should expect that in a fallen world, there will be injustice in places. How about adoption and foster care? How many of you know Christians who are or have faithfully served in that area? Hey, be praying for them. Come alongside them. Maybe you, you yourself are called to do that. What about addiction and restoration? How many of you know someone who is faithfully serving in that area, helping the, the outcasts, helping the homeless, helping those who are addicted and struggling in that way? Pray for them. Come alongside them. See how you can do it. Maybe you are called to that work yourself. Here's one people might not think about, and it applies directly to us as a church. Are we being faithful to exercise church discipline? There are so many times where issues of like the feminist conversation comes up and it comes up about the church. And I think, man, these people would make great, uh, great Presbyterians because what they seem to really want is some mechanism for uh, disciplining people who don't know how to treat other human beings with decency. And um, we should be a church that is holding our own people accountable. And this is especially apparent in the area of sexual abuse. There's so much scandal among the Southern Baptists uh, going on right now. And to have the, and I don't know much about it. I can't say if it's valid or invalid, the critiques. I haven't dug into it. Right? My prayer is that it has not been as prevalent as the headlines make it sound. My prayer is that, uh, that it is the, the exception among them and not the norm, because the church should be faithful in addressing immorality in her own midst. And if we are doing that, that actually impacts the world around us. And the final exhortation to justice and good works is that we need to be able to ask ourselves, I mentioned this a minute ago, are, are we falling short? And the answer has to be yes. We know we're sinners. Where none of us are doing any of this perfectly. So really the final exhortation is to be a Christian. Which means that every single day you repent of your sins and you lean on the mercies of Christ. You saturate your mind with the word of God and you strive to be more faithful to it. Knowing that there is nothing within yourself that could do it. But by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit you are able to be a new being you are able to be a, a new creation, and you are able to be like Christ. You are able to follow Christ. But it's an ongoing process of repentance and faith and worship.
And even as we gather today to receive the ordinary means of grace, may we be strengthened as disciples of Jesus. May we be strengthened in, in our ability to be more like Jesus so that when we're out in the world, we may be a faithful presence in it, both in word and deed. May God lead us in this hall. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I do pray that you would uh, strengthen us and equip us as your church today. We need your mercy. We've fallen short. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to do the work that you've called us to do. May we be a faithful church. May we be a church filled with people who on the day, day of judgment, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, help us today to celebrate your mercy, to uh, delight in your grace to worship you as our God and our King, knowing that one day we will be able to be in that perfect city where there is no injustice. And until that day, may we live as citizens of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.